Hello and welcome to the Green Team's Legendarium's uh, Malaz, uh, Way of Adon team. Uh, listeners of the show will remember, if they actually listened, a few weeks ago we reviewed The Way of Adon by Philip Chase. First of all, it seems that we didn't do a good job selling the book on our own chat, so first of all, I'd like to say it's good, read it. Second of all, I'd like to introduce our guest, uh, author of The Way of Adon, Philip Chase. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here and to join the three of you in this discussion. I'm really looking forward to talking about The Way of Adan and whatever else comes up. I'm always game to talk uh, pretty much anything fantasy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I found Philip on YouTube when I was searching for Malazan videos and he included in his The Best of Fantasy series. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I've been watching him since. Uh, he is the nemesis of a friend of the podcast, AP Canavan, and they do lots of really good videos together. Uh, and part of the reason I decided to read this book and cover it was to get an opportunity to talk to Philip. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, thank you. And, and, and I'm really happy to be here. I would have been happy to discuss Malazan with you guys. Who knows? Maybe it'll even come up. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Malazan and the... Uh, videos that I did with AP were uh, some of the my favorite things I've ever done on the platform. Uh, probably the the best, uh, most uh, profound literary journey I've ever been on in my life. So I'm a, I'm a huge Malazan is my favorite series of all time. Unfortunately, I did read it after writing my own trilogy for the most part. So I can't claim it's a big influence on me or anything like that. But I do love it. You say that, but um. And I, I believe you, I'm not calling you a liar or anything, but I noticed yeah. something um, when I was reading your book is like a lot of the introductions, you know how Steve or Steven, Mr. Erickson, when he yes. introduces a scene, he kind of likes to give us the, the broader picture, maybe the environment and uh, like present it through a certain focalizer and give us uh, set up the themes of the uh, the scene. I noticed you did that quite a few times in your book, too. And I really I thought that was really neat. Yes, you're absolutely right. That is a habit of mine, uh, actually. So much so that AP actually kind of scolded me <laughs> for for doing it too much. And I actually had to to uh, revise a bit. And sometimes, and, and AP was right, uh, I have to say. Uh, there were times when I had a single character with uh, a lot of, you know, cogitating going on to open up a chapter and he said to me you know this would be more interesting if you had someone for this person to talk to you know and and so i thought you know what yeah he's kind of right there um so i ended up putting uh some characters uh inserting them into a scene where there had been previously only one character and and he's right it's much more interesting to be listening in on a dialogue rather than to be watching a lone character especially when i, I do have that habit and, and sometimes it's, it, it's not that you can never do that but um, I, I uh, had to rein it in a bit there, <laughs> but you're right. That is definitely a habit of mine. I, I agree with you too. That is something that Steven Erickson does. Yep. It's funny because a few weeks ago we were talking to AP and I, I jokingly told him that my favorite part of the book was the editing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I'm sure he got a chuckle out of that too. Yeah. So far, everybody that, well, okay. Every time that we've talked about the series on on here or with AP or on in the uh, Legendary Discord, uh, at least one person has brought up Balsack the Priest. Uh, <laughs> uh, Balsack. Yeah, 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 bring up. Oh, sorry. One thing. Before we get into that, um, there's one thing I want to say. So we got a lot of comments to the degree that we didn't do enough non-spoiler talk mm. when we spoke about yes. this. Oh, uh, okay. So... 
in the interest of getting more people to read this who haven't already read it, uh, let's try to keep spoilers to a minimum until, like, I don't know, further down. But yes, Balsack, okay, one, of, one of the early characters balls. in the books. Yep. Yes, and no spoilers about him, but his name is, in fact, Bagsack. Uh, but it's so funny. <laughs> I think more people call him Balsack than Bagsack now. And I blame AP for that, because even when he was... Uh, Editing the book, I mean, he would write notes to me. He would constantly refer to that character as Balsack. And, and so mm -hmm. I think that's where that started. And I blame AP. Uh, it's entirely his fault. He, yeah, <laughs> he cursed your book. Because <laughs> yeah. when I was reading it, before we had talked to AP, uh, and, and he, had, he brought it up, I immediately switched. Like, my brain flipped a switch, and every Bagsack was replaced with Balsack on the page. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, well, hmm. you know, I should have, uh, I, I gave him a copy of the book and I should have uh, scratched out bag sack and just written ball sack all over it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's nice to know that despite our ages, we're all equally juvenile. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So in, in the interest of um, selling your book, uh, one of our listeners, Lady Sweden, asks, uh, what kind of readers would you recommend read this book? Wow. Well, uh, you know, uh, anybody, your, all your relatives and friends makes a great Christmas present, I would say. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it's probably people, what I hear other people say, and, and I'm probably not the best person to assess my own writing in, in a sense, but what I hear a lot of people say is people who, who enjoy classical fantasy with a, a bit of a modern presentation, uh, might be inclined to enjoy the the story I do have. I mean, it's my influences are are, are ancient, not just uh, old. So of course Tolkien is an influence. But I also, when I was young, and read Lord of the Rings when I was about twelve years old, I was put under a spell, and I thought to myself, Wow, you know, I would really love to do that people to do what Tolkien did for me. And so I got this idea in my head that to be a fantasy writer, I had to learn a bunch of archaic languages. <laughs> and uh, so I went out and uh, went the academic route and I learned Old English and Old Norse. I learned uh, Welsh, more modern Welsh, but Welsh. Uh, and uh, I, I also learned some other languages, um, including Nepali, which is an, an influence uh, in this book as well, so, or in the series. And um, so I think that a lot of the, those influences, those older mythological, you know, the Eddas and Beowulf and stuff like that, you know, in, in terms of the uh, themes that I'm interested in are very similar to themes that come up in a, in a Tolkienian kind of book. Uh, the fleetingness of life, uh, exile and one's identity in relation to one's people, um, ideas about... Um, now, in in the case of my, without getting into spoilers, uh, I'm interested in this this uh, trilogy. The backdrop to it is a, a holy war. Uh, so, um, obviously, interested in spiritual matters as well. Um, so, those are some of the the influences that go into this, I suppose. Um, but uh, so, yeah, somebody who likes older stuff, because I definitely have a lot of nods to, as I said, fleetingness of life and history, and trying trying to create a sense of layers and and uh, a lot of people have commented on the world building, uh, mostly positive, and that's something that I, I probably spent a lot of time doing 
And uh, if you continue reading in the, the trilogy, you'll see a lot of uh, me presenting languages and other things. So I do continue to do some of that world building. Of course, the first book is where you, you introduce a lot of stuff. So uh, it's probably where you'll see the most. But, but yeah, so if you like layered kind of uh, fantasy with a sense of history, with uh, some classical nods, uh, I do engage with uh, some of the tropes, which for some people is a bad word, but to me, a trope is a tool. And if you use it well, you know, it can be a very compelling part of the story. And I think I'll be surprising people somewhat too with some of the tropes that uh, people have been discussing so far that I, I'm definitely playing with, but I think I do something a little bit different with them, particularly in the second and third books. And um, in addition to that, I, I would say that the, the style of prose feels very, it feels classical to me as well. Um, mm -hmm. I think I said this in our episode on it, but uh, when I read it, I what what is brought to mind is um, I, I also read some Guy Gabriel K recently, and oh. it felt it, there was it, it felt it felt um, like that. And of course, K is a fantastic writer, so I I would say this is a very favorable comparison. <laughs> <laughs> that I, I'm I'm extremely honored uh, by that comparison because Guy Gabriel K is, is is a very gifted writer. His prose is gorgeous. I've only read Tagana, of course. I've read The Silmarillion, which he did help to uh, put together as well. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he's he's extremely talented, and I want to read more of his work. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's really fantastic. I think a lot of my my prose style. I owe it to Tolkien. Ursula Le Guin is another big influence for me, uh, particularly on the prose. And I would say being a medievalist. Uh, so I also did a lot of, so my, my PhD dissertation was on a chap named William Morris, who was in fact a huge influence on Tolkien. William Morris in the 1890s was writing the fantasies that would influence Tolkien as a young man. And, and Tolkien got his resolution to do that sort of thing from William Morris. And William Morris is, uh, he called, they were called prose romances in the 1890s, and they were very archaic. Uh, this is a guy who also spent time translating Beowulf and Old Norse sagas and stuff like that. So he was, a, he was one of those medieval enthusiasts of the 19th century. Um, and so that's probably in me as well, you know, uh, that medieval and um, 19th century medieval revival stuff. Um, and, but I, I, I hope that it's accessible at the same time. Mm -hmm. I definitely do. Um, ascribe to Ursula Le Guin's uh, essay, the, uh, From Elfland to Poughkeepsie, where she describes effective fantasy prose as being a language that informs the reader that you're in another world, not in our world. You know, I don't want people to feel like they're in New Jersey when they're reading the dialogue in, in my book. I want them to feel like they're in a, immersed in a different world altogether. And so I think that the language that you use is really key to that. So I, I'd lean a little bit in that direction. And there are a lot of really good modern fantasy writers who do that. I think George R. R. Martin is a great example of uh, a modern fantasy writer who sprinkles some you know, archaic words in there and plays a bit with the word order and the diction at times and, and gives you a sense that, ah, no, this is not our world. This is, this is Westeros, right? Um, so that was the goal. And um, to make it 
feel like a different world, to help the reader be immersed in that world, but to keep it accessible at the same time. So I hope it doesn't put anybody off or anything like that um, with the, the, the few archaic words that I use here and there. I think most fantasy readers are fairly used to that sort of thing, right? Yes, I, I would say it definitely succeeds in feeling accessible. It felt like very easy to read for me, but not, not simple, uh, which is yeah. also important in my opinion. It's hard actually to, to write that way. Uh, it, that's to, to write in a way that is easy on the reader, but at the same time evocative. Uh, that's I, certainly not something that I could do right away. Uh, it, I've worked on this trilogy for uh, 18 years or so, so uh, and hopefully got better and better as I, uh, as I um, revised and revisited the story. So. Well, that's a good segue to what I was going to ask next um, about your writing process, because I, I know you've said for a while that you've been writing this for a long time and gone through draft after draft, right? And you've had help in editing. So I, I, could you just tell us about how um, you eventually decided to get it published and who, uh, who helped you with that and how was it different from uh, what you expected? And then maybe the after, like you, you've only just published this, what, last month, two months ago? March like 21st. Yeah, like interacting yeah. with us or interacting with other people on, uh, on BookTube or whatever. Sure, yeah. Wow, okay. So I started this uh, in 2004, and so it'll be actually more like 19 years by the summer. And I began with a map. I drew a map and because I wanted to have a world where the story would happen before I knew what the story would be. Did know the name of the main character, Day Raven, uh, because I stole it from Beowulf. Uh, there is a minor character, a throwaway character, who is a, just a warrior, a Frankish warrior, who's killed by Beowulf, and just talked about that one brief moment. And I thought, what a waste of a really cool name, Day Raven. You know, in, in Old English, it's Die Raven. Um, so, and I decided to modernize it, and because uh, I thought it was a cool name, and say, what, I don't know what I'm going to do with this guy named Day Raven, but. Uh, I'm going to write a story because that name deserves a story. So that's where I started. And I poured all those years of Old English and Old Norse and, and living in South Asia as well, because there's a really, particularly on the magic, uh, there's a lot of Buddhist and Hindu philosophy that goes into the magic. Um, so I'm seeing you guys nodding. So yeah, I, you definitely picked up on that, I think. Um, so all this stuff just got poured into this uh, this trilogy, and eventually, I was able to convince an agent to take on the books. And I thought I was going to try to do the traditional publishing route, to go you know go to the traditional publishers. And I had a great agent who actually helped me to revise the books as well. Um, this this was a process that took years, um, and I wasn't I wasn't writing year round either. I should make that clear. I was only writing during the summers when I had time, uh, because I have to I have a job, you know, <laughs> and I have to teach, and I I, need, I want to do a good job of that. So I was pretty much writing in the summers all those years, and also I did write a, a standalone sequel to the trilogy as well. So I actually wrote four books, um, but. But be that as it may, I did get an agent, and I had um, a really great relationship with that agent, still do. Uh, but ultimately, when he pitched the books uh, in 2022, early in 2022, it became clear after months of waiting that 
Yeah, it probably wasn't going to happen. If it was going to happen at all, it wasn't going to happen anytime soon uh, because the publishing industry is, it's a bit of a mess. Um, you may have heard uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, post-pandemic. It hasn't really, even it was kind of broken before the pandemic, but the, the pandemic really made it even worse. Uh, and so even people who are already um, authors working with publishing houses are having to wait a long time for their books to be published. Uh, so I just thought, you know, I have this platform. I started a YouTube channel three years ago. And so, and, and people like you, um, her and fan have been leaving wonderful comments all these years. And, um, I started this channel and I didn't know, I actually started it as a supplement to a fantasy novels course that I was teaching. I thought it was going to be a supplement to my course. And I had no idea that it was going to grow to, um, it's now 21,000 some odd subscribers, um, which is, you know, um, you know, for an old dude on, on, <laughs> and who knew nothing about social media, it's probably pretty good. Uh, so I, uh, I thought, you know, I have this platform, I, I have a way to get the word out. Um, so maybe I should look into self-publishing and I had a conversation with my agent and he agreed actually. This probably is the best route for you right now, given the state of things in the publishing world. And the fact that uh, a lot of publishers now, most fantasy publishers are looking for something different. Uh, they're looking for the next different direction for fantasy, or they're looking for fantasy and diverse settings and that sort of thing. And, and while I definitely do have a, a very heavy South Asian influence, I think my, my, my trilogy feels uh, more classical in the sense that there's a lot of European medieval influence in there. Um, so, and that, that, you know, that's just, that's what I wanted to write. And so, you know, and that's what I did, but it's not necessarily what publishers are looking for these days. Uh, so I thought, okay, let me go ahead and try this self-publishing thing and see how it goes. So that's what I did. And I have no regrets whatsoever. I have been enjoying the creative freedom. Uh, and I have to be clear, I think what the publishing industry does is very important that you work with an agent who helps you make your story better. You work with an editor at the publishing house who they make your story better. They help you improve. They, they, they want great stories to be out there too, right? Uh, so these people, they know what they're doing. They have experience, uh, they're passionate. Um, and so if you're, you're a self-publishing author, you have to replace all that somehow. And so we're very lucky today because you have a lot of options. There are fantastic professional editors out there like AP Canavan, uh, who I'm so fortunate to know. And so I worked with AP as he was my developmental editor. I was able to hire a great artist and a wonderful uh, map designer and uh, the same person who did my map also uh, did the cover design uh, and I'm so happy I'm so thrilled uh, with uh, that's Jack Shepard by the way who, who did the map um, off of a map that I drew myself and he made it look really great and I'm really happy with the aesthetics um, and that's because we have artists and designers and all of that. So there are a lot of options. The thing is about self-publishing is, so normally a publishing house back in the day would do all that, right? They would be the artist, they would pay the, the cover designer and, and all that. Um, and I had to do that myself. 
So you, if you have to figure if you're going to be a self-publishing author, you're going to spend eh, five to $10,000 to get your book published. And most self-published authors will not make that money back. Uh, that's, that's unfortunately the case, unless you have a way of getting the word out. And I'm very fortunate in that I have this uh, part of this community uh, on YouTube uh, of fantasy enthusiasts. Uh, so that uh, gave me uh, a certain, I guess, advantage in being a self-published author. So that's, that's worked pretty well. Um, pretty happy. You know, for for a self-published book, you know, I'm not gonna uh, uh, make the New York Times bestseller lists or anything like that. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't anyway because they they don't count self-published books, which is terrible. I think it's yeah, it's stupid, right? That the New York Times to make the New York Times bestseller list, you have to be published with a traditional publisher. It doesn't matter how well you do as a self-published author, which seems unfair to me, but you know, that's 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 how it is. Um, but uh, yeah, for a self-published book my my first one is done i'm very happy with how it's done uh so yeah so that's the story i guess i answer your i think maybe you had another part to that question i thought but i've been going on and on so i'll let you uh i'll let it you was very, i asked i asked about how the um post publishing has gone with uh i guess fan yes. reactions and friend reactions and mm. uh, you're, you're talking to us in part to promote your book, but also just to, I guess, talk to people who are interested in it. Yeah, yeah, I love it. it you know, it, I spent 18 years um, not entirely all by myself because I had friends and family and that sort of thing who were looking at it. And I eventually got the agent and then there was AP. Uh, so, but it's, yeah, it's felt a little lonely at times. Uh, and uh, now it's really fantastic to have the, the first part of the trilogy out there and people reacting to it and it is so gratifying when someone uh, writes a review in Goodreads or on Amazon or on a blog or something, or I get to talk to people like you and you, you know, people who said, oh, this part, you know, did this for me. And I was like, yes, that's what I wanted. Or this part did this for me. And I was like, wow, that's cool. I actually didn't mean that, but you know, uh, that's awesome, you know? And of course, not everybody loves it that you have to expect uh, there are people who are going to read it and not love it. So and that's OK. I, I was very much prepared for that as well. Um, and, you know, some people have mixed reactions, um, but it's it's really gratifying to hear from folks uh, who, for whom the story resonates and uh, who feel that something about it is compelling, whether it be the world building or they, they connected with the character or the themes that I'm exploring of um, the holy war thing but also um, how we deal with our mortality you know where does identity come from especially in relation to the people in our lives and, and stuff like that so um so it's really gratifying uh, i've been very very happy about the reaction uh, uh for the most part it's been uh very positive and i'm in a, I'm, I'm very motivated to get book two out which is uh coming out in, on june 21st uh and just having a blast uh editing that right now oh we're looking forward to it yeah um personally speaking i think what's resonated most with me are uh your exploration of themes and the pro styles i mentioned earlier so thank you for that i i, I love the holy war aspect i love the exploration of faith and the different faiths, and especially the the way that empathy isn't uh, explored in their uh, magic, and how faith is uh, linked with that as well. Yeah, I, yeah, thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Ash. I I also really 
Okay, first of all, uh, when it came to putting the physical book together, you and everybody else that was involved did a fantastic job. I was uh, planning on ordering this on ebook, but I, uh, I detest Amazon and, and Kindle. Uh, so I, I was um, forced to buy the paperback, and I am quite pleased that I did. It's, it's a beautiful book, and I love the... It, it feels like it'll like hold up, um, which a, a lot of... M Books that are published these days uh, don't don't quite feel that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, the physical book uh, I had uh, I went two routes. One was through KDP, which is Amazon, and then the other is uh, through Ingram Spark, so that uh, folks who don't want to buy through Amazon can do that, at least with the physical book. Um, and Amazon makes it very hard not to go with Amazon uh, for the ebook. Uh, I'm sure you've yeah. heard that. Uh, but for <laughs> yes. the physical, you, you you can order from other bookstores. Uh, libraries can order it, and they'll be getting the Ingram Spark version of the book in that case. Um, so if you ordered from like Barnes and Noble or something, then you'll get Ingram Spark's version, which is actually they're slightly different. The Ingram Spark one is a bit thinner. They must use thinner paper. And the cover is slightly more vibrant if you get the Ingram Spark one, but otherwise they're identical. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it was a really gratifying process. I was surprised how much I enjoyed getting the book set up and, and all of that. Uh, I had to learn a lot, though. I really did. Um, so, uh, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that about the themes. Um, uh, that uh, really makes me feel good that the, some of those connect the 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 Hollywood thing. Without getting to spoilers, because we're not there yet, but uh, as far as that goes, I'm very interested in religion. I grew up the son and the grandson and the great-grandson of Protestant ministers. Uh, and so you can imagine that, are oh, you a PK too? Okay, cool. All right, we have another PK in the house. Uh, preacher's <laughs> kid, for those of you who don't know. Um, so, yeah, I, you could say that religion is uh, something that's just very much uh, woven into my psyche. Um, but I also went away. I, you know, I, there, I didn't become a minister myself, uh, and I do not participate in an organized religion uh, today. Uh, and it's not that I ever just, uh, you know, rebelled or uh, rejected uh my religion i consider myself a spiritual person um, but i am fascinated by how religion has been a tool for uh building communities for uh encouraging people to love one another for understanding and at the same time it has been a tool that does completely the opposite for uh, uh inflaming hatred and for uh, turning other people into um, the other, you know, uh, who are not worthy of existence if they don't believe what we believe, and uh, destruction rather than creation. So it's it's fascinating to me that this thing, this institution, if you want to call it that, that um, humans have. Uh, I think we, we we have such beautiful aspirations, and at the same time. <laughs> Uh, we can be so incredibly cruel uh, to each other and to the world around us. And I just find it fascinating that, that the same institution can go in those directions. Um, and that's something I wanted to explore. Uh, and I, I suppose I'm, I'm just sort of wrestling with it myself, and it comes out in fiction. That's the great thing about fiction, is it helps you to struggle with stuff like that. Um, so that's definitely something that was uh, 
even I think unconsciously motivating me as I was writing was just figuring out, how, well, how do I feel about religion, you know? Um, because I do feel a lot of affection for it. And maybe that shows in some of the characters even who, mm -hmm. you know, there are parts of them that, uh, characters who do some things that I strongly disagree with, but I kind of feel a weird identification with these characters in places. So hopefully that comes through. It does, absolutely. And yeah. I think the way you feel about that uh, is exactly why it resonates so much with me. Huh? I I will also say that one of the one of, in the in the book, not to get into spoilers, one of the discussions in there felt very true and very informed. Um, uh, um, it happens about midway through the book. It felt very informed by historical discussions of religion and um, the the constructed nature of it, um, which um, was was great to read because. Um, while it is awesome that people like to explore these these topics, and I, I, um, it's also awesome when people, it, it's clear that a lot of thought has been put into it even before the writing started to happen, um, which I, I think shines through here. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I, it is definitely something I spent a lot of my life thinking about. And uh and the, the the experience living in South Asia was really important too. And I mentioned earlier how Hinduism and Buddhism really inform what I try to do with the magic, um, which is empathy-based magic uh, to a large degree. I am very moved, though I'm not a practicing Buddhist, uh, but I'm very moved by the notion that all of life is connected, that um, that it is possible for me to see myself in you and for you to see yourself in me and that we can um, have a kind of communion that way. Uh, and that from that grows respect and love and other things that are, are I think, vital to the survival of our species. Um, so I thought this would be a cool thing to do if, if somehow we had a magic system. And I, I, don't, I, I even hesitate to use the word system because um, most people who read it would say it's very much soft magic to use the terms that the, the kids these days are using, right? Um, <laughs> it's not, it's definitely not um, uh, on the hard magic side of things. Um, but um, to have that be the basis for the magic, the idea of empathy, the idea of connecting, of being the other, of having oneself, and the idea of, of transcendence through that, transcending oneself uh, feel that connection with the world um, that was something I, th I wanted to explore as well um, and so the magic is very much interwoven with the religious exploration too um, it's also true i think that many religious uh, traditions experience similar things but they explain it to themselves in different ways so i think that every religion people in every religion experience transcendence but they have a different ways of explaining that that path, right? I, I think that that's that's important. So that's something I tried to get into as well. Like, okay, you have this, uh, the way of Idan is a religion, and this is how they explain their experience of transcendence. Whereas people from the Andumaic kingdoms have this uh, dualistic religion. They have the mother and the father, and they explain transcendence differently, but I think they arrive at the same place somehow, right? Um, at least in some ways. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think I think that works as well. I really like how the empathy magic um, 
uh, affects how the villains operate, the the antagonists. To me, it makes them a lot more horrifying because there are a lot of villains in fantasy where they they don't they don't empathize with whoever they're um, uh, antagonizing, and there are a lot of religious zealots that don't um, have to consider the other viewpoint. But it's actually forced for these guys or this is how they have their power and i think that's a that's a fascinating dynamic to set up and i'm i am very excited to see how that's explored later on in the trilogy yeah yeah so if you're convinced that you have to do something to save humanity and if that something is so important that it doesn't matter what you do to other people to other individuals and you're going to pursue that goal no matter what uh, because you're convinced that you're right. And that scares me, honestly. That that terrifies me <laughs> as well. That idea that I know what's right, and I know you don't see it, but I'm going to force you to see it. And if you get in my way, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to off you, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah, and that's, that's, that's interesting to me. That fascinates me, that... We human beings can be so convinced of our own rightness that we're willing to kill other people um, and to, to dominate that way. And yet we're also capable of empathizing. Uh, and you know, I, I'm somebody who spent a lot of time traveling. I lived in South Asia. I lived in Europe when I was, when I was growing up. And I feel like a lot of us who, who love reading and experiencing uh, different worlds are also lovers of traveling um, at the same time and experiencing different cultures. And something that changed me as an individual a lot was living in different places and understanding different ways of looking at the world, learning different languages uh, really helps you get a a new lens onto the world and understanding another culture. Uh, So that's something I'm very interested in and and explore, I think, in in, at least try to in this series is the idea of somebody fairly naive, very parochial, being, having a worldview that they're comfortable with, suddenly having that snatched away from them and seeing the world in a new light and from the perspective of different people and realizing, oh, huh, I guess I didn't know as much as I thought. Or, wow, I guess I do have more in common with these people than I thought. You know, Even though, yeah, we have our differences, but look at the things that we have in common. Um, so, and we're all wrestling with things like our mortality. And, uh, so yeah, I, I love cultural interplay. That's been a big part of my life too. I, I, um, also found it interesting talking about the cultural interplay. There were some instances in there where they had like the origin myth and a new explanation from some characters. And I thought that that part was really fascinating and I really liked it, especially again, traveling or living abroad we have to change our perceptions and that was huge yeah yeah that's i i'm i love it i love it you're you're absolutely right our perceptions become challenged and and that can be uncomfortable sometimes uh you know if you live in a different place you know in, in so many ways like you know i i lived in nepal and when i first arrived there i was uh, it was stupid of me but i didn't inform myself as much as i should have about the way things work about the culture which is much more of a high context culture uh whereas i'm, I'm american and i come from a more low context culture 
where I'll give you an example. So in American culture, we tend to say, at least we think we, we say what we mean. So if I'm at somebody's house for dinner and they ask, do you want more food? I'll say no, and they'll say, okay, and they'll put it away. Over in Nepal, there are much more high context. So I see the, the guys living over in Asia nodding. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, I'm at somebody's house, and I'll say, uh, the, I finished my plate, because I, I was very dumb about this, because I, I was taught when I grew up, you finish all the food on your plate. You know, I'm a, I'm a New England Puritan here, so um, that's what I would always do, is finish everything on the plate. And so I finished all my food, and, and my host would say, oh, would you like some more? And I said, no, no, thanks, I'm full. And then, boom, there's rice on my plate. I was like, wait, I, I said, no, what happened there? <laughs> and so I was like, okay. And then I finished finish all that food, and then I'm just bursting, and then they say, would you like more? And I'm like, uh, no, I'm really full. Boom, there's more food on my plate. What is going on here? <laughs> so it took me a little while to figure out, you know, you have to be way more assertive. You have to put your hands over the plate. You have to snatch the plate away. You have to really, you know, and then they'll know. So they have to read that body language, you know, and, and they have to, to uh, I need to get the right signals. And I, had, I didn't realize that at first. Uh, so, and, and the reverse can happen too. I had a good friend uh, from Nepal who came to the States. And when he was asked by his host, do you want some more food? He was like, no, no, thanks. And with the expectation that they're going to, insist instead they would okay and put the food away and he was starving you know <laughs> so <laughs> so i find Americans. that fascinating yeah. yeah um out of uh, just curiosity what what which of the three major vehicles of buddhism are you most like familiar with or were you more surrounded with when you lived in asia yeah so um no I, i'm not the extent that um i i have read about buddhism um I, I can't really claim great familiarity with any of them, to be frank. I'm, I mean, not I'm not a practicing Buddhist. Uh, I've only read up on it a bit. Um, have you read uh, Thich Nhat Hanh before? Um, he's a Vietnamese uh, Buddhist scholar. Um, I love his books. He, he, he wrote this book called The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching. And I believe it's a form of Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, that's, am I saying that correctly? Um, mm. I think that's what it is. So that's probably what I'm most familiar with is that. I mean, I, I refer to it as philosophical Buddhism uh, is, is what uh, I'm most interested in uh, and just as a way of living. Uh, in fact, the, the, one of the first things that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching says, I think it's the very first sentence, is the Buddha is not a god, right? And the emphasis in, in the book is it's not really a religion. It's a way of living your life, right? And so that's the angle that I'm interested in um, when it comes to Buddhism. And there's just so much of, about it that I admire. Um, uh, so when I, when I talk about Buddhism, I tend to think of it in, in those terms. Uh, uh, another non-way of it done, central question. So you're obviously a big fan of Beowulf. What yeah. is your go-to? Do you have a go-to translation? What is it, and what do you think about Maria Headley's translation? Uh, okay, uh, so I would love it if everyone would learn Old English and read it in Old English, but that's not very realistic. <laughs> so, um, so my uh, the go-to translation for me is Seamus Heaney's translation. Mm -hmm. uh, he, was, one, yeah. he was a brilliant poet, and I feel that 
gives a good sense of the aesthetics of Old English poetry. There's, he does preserve some of the alliteration. Gives you a sense of it being, and he uses, unless you're from Northern Ireland and you're familiar with some of those, uh, those words that are strange to the rest of us, um, those words serve to give you a sense of this being an older culture, right? I think he succeeds very well in that. Um, while it's still a pretty accessible translation. Uh, so it gives you a sense of poetic flow and uh, the way, you know, three stresses per line and a lot of them alliterate. So overall, I think his is the most accessible while still being aesthetically uh, correct. Uh, correct isn't the right word, but, um, you know, um, you're going to sacrifice something as a translator no matter what. You know, the more accurate your translation is, the more clunky it feels usually. And the more aesthetic it is, the further you're going to deviate from the meaning. Uh, so I think Haney, or Heaney, sorry, uh, he strikes a good balance there uh, in his translation. As for Headley's, I actually, I'm ashamed to say it, but I haven't read it yet. Um, and I'm intrigued by the idea of her, uh, uh, what I hear is a sort of a feminist reinterpretation of, of Beowulf, uh, which sounds fascinating to me. Um, there's been a... a wealth of really great feminist criticism of the poem uh, and so I, I'm assuming that she draws somewhat from that um, in, in her work um, so I'm, I'm curious to read it well um, if we don't have anything else should we go into spoilers I think, I think we're probably I, you know the listeners now have like a solid 45 minutes I think of spoiler free talk <laughs> they should, they should, if they listen this long they should just really buy the book and read it because it's really good <laughs> all right let's see what did i have written down oh um arna and galdor are like gay for each other yeah well um so i'm how do i answer this uh because yes that is something you can figure out in the first book um and that is uh i guess some people didn't figure it out, but uh, so I didn't want to spoil it necessarily, but I'm not going to, it's, I think it's something you can figure out. And I've seen people think, obviously you did. Um, and that is something that becomes much more um, a part of the story in the second book. Um, so yeah, but yes, yes. Uh, so we are in a culture where uh, the established religion frowns upon homosexuality. Um, and so, of course, there are gay people. There have always been gay people and always will be. And, are you sure? Uh, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure about that. Um, but this is a, a culture where uh, gay people f feel that they have to hide uh, because of the persecution that would result from being more overt uh, for the most part. Particularly... Um, in, in Torland and where the way of Edan is, is dominant. Uh, so, yeah. So that is, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really thrilled that you figured it out uh, because I thought I had given people enough in the first book um, and a lot of people didn't, didn't get that. Um, but it'll be super obvious in the second book. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it, it felt like it was all but stated to me. Um. Okay, so good. much much like Balsack, it was right on the page. It just kind of translated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that, that's a relationship that um, I'll do more with later. Um, but it is a very important part of, I haven't even met him yet, um, but you've heard about Galdor. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm excited for people to meet this character because he's a character that I love very much. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, one of my favorite characters, actually, is Galdor. I also love Arna. I, I, I feel sad for Arna and, and his conflict. And he has this conflict. And so now that the that's out of the bag, uh, part of his issue, part of his guilt is that obviously he's in a place now where he rejected that part of himself. And so he chose uh, to conform to the established interpretation of the religion rather than continue his relationship. Um, and you know, that, that was a choice he made based on a morality that he's maybe not so sure about now, right? Um, he's, he's questioning his decisions and his loyalty to Bledla, um, whom he obviously has tried to persuade to be less violent. So he, he's, he's on board with the idea of, yes, we need to convert everybody to the, the way, but it shouldn't be through violence. We should be doing it through love. And Bloodless interpretation is, no, we have to do it any way we can, and the sooner the better, um, which is going to be violence. Um, so, so Arna, somebody I, I have a, a lot of, you know, he has a lot of doubt, um, not only because of his sexuality, but just in general about the validity of the current interpretation of his faith. Um, and so he's he's character who's who's very, I think, conflicted. In, in many ways. So I, I feel for the guy. <laughs> yeah. All of my favorite characters in the book were the priests. And I love how incredibly varied they were. <laughs> um, like at the beginning with Dayraven, it was okay. Um, I had Dayraven, he grew on me later, even though I really liked his, uh, his love for storytelling and whatnot. But as soon as we got into our first Jormund and Arna uh, POV, it was like, oh yeah, this is it. This is what I, I love. And then later on, even Bloodlet became more complex, and it was, uh, I don't know, just more icing on the cake. I loved it. And then they went to that inn, and they met that priest, and like, oh, man, why can't Balsack be like this priest? And that was really cool. Yeah. So thank yeah. You that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. No, he's there, and I've met priests like that who are just the nicest people you could ever want to meet. And they clearly love what they do. They love the people that they serve. So I wanted to at least have some inclusion of that. Um, and, and Yorman's another one who, the guy's a jerk, you know? He's, he's not a nice person, but yet he's kind of right about a lot of things. Uh, so I'm just kind of like, huh, do I like him actually? Do I like Yorman? Um, and I'm not sure uh, what the answer to that is, uh, but um, I think I might, you know, there are aspects of him. And I, that's something that, I'm glad you, that you said with with Bledla that um, it went from character who seemed, I think, at first for a lot of people to be very clearly a villain, right? And what I tried to do was gradually introduce some complexity and to introduce the idea that eh, maybe there's something to this guy because there are. I will say that there are aspects of even Bledla that I kind of. I'm, I mean, his dedication, he's, 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 I don't agree with his, his morality necessarily, but he is not a hypocrite. No. He treats himself the same way he treats the, uh, the rest of the world. He, when he whips himself, you know, he is subduing his flesh the same way that he believes he needs to subdue the world in order to 
uh, bring about the, the, the kingdom of the eternal. Um, so, you know, the guy is consistent, at least. You know, the one character I will say that I really don't identify with at all is Erkenwald. Um, mm. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing about him that... Uh, and yet he is someone, I think, that exists in this world. Uh, someone who's essentially a narcissist uh, who, who thinks that the entire world is, should be doing his bidding and, and serving his purposes. So, yeah. Uh, I have another que uh, direct question. So we had a little argument in our uh, review of your book. Um, okay. Was it Arna that gave the, uh, the text to Sequara? Oh, so yeah. that is something that will be super clear again in book two. Um, oh, and if you want me to tell you, I will, um, because I think it's another one that you can piece together. I said it definitely was, and I think you two said I that thought it was Joramon. Yeah, I thought it was Joramon as well. So I can see. I mean, obviously, I wanted people to be confused. Otherwise, I would have made it uh, super clear. Um, there are a couple hints. I will just say there are a couple hints. One is that the voice, when Sequar is in that, uh, that basically closet with all the, the, the textiles in there, she hears an old man's voice. Mm. So that's a clue. Um, and the other thing, to, I think the question is, who, who gains more? Who has the interest in stopping what's happening? Is it Yoramon or is it Arna? Yoramon's plan right now isn't to stop Bledla. It's more to seize an opportunity when the time is right. But Erkenwald uh, needs Bledla for this uh, holy war. He has this power. That is clear. He has something that no one else has. Uh, and uh, no one can contest him. So for, uh, for Yoramon to act against... Bloodless interest at this point would be premature. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> Thank you, Philip. That's very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I pretty much answered it, but, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so with, with regards to the priests, um, it was amusing to me how each of them was uh, sort of underestimating the others. <laughs> Bledlow was just like, oh, Arna's just this old man who's just going to go along with what I, whatever I say. And Yoraman was just, yeah, he's, Arna's an old fool and he doesn't really understand the politics. And Arna's, yeah, it, going around and around. Um, and I, I really appreciated how, yeah, like Bledlow, he is a fanatic. He's, he's willing to do some terrible things. He honest, honestly believes what he's doing and he applies his standards fairly. Which is something that I think that um, in depictions of villains, it's a lot of the times it's implied or it, it seems like these villains are are hypocrites and they don't actually believe in what they're saying. They're just consciously or not, um, you know, doing this for Machiavellian reasons, for for entirely self interested reasons. Whereas, yeah, for Bloodlets, like kind of like a twisted self sacrifice kind of way because. <laughs> It's, he's not taking pleasure in exploding this guy's head. <laughs> no, like he can't. No, There's not. no way for that to happen because of the the way that the magic is set up. It's it's impossible. Um, yeah, yeah. In fact, he feels that guy's pain when he blows yeah. up his head. He dies along with him. That's a seriously dedicated dude right there. Right? Yes. If you're willing to experience death 
in order to uncover some, you know, you're after some bit of information in order to further the, the, the way, that's some crazy dedication right there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I do kind of admire Bledla in that sense. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be anywhere near him. I don't want to, <laughs> I definitely don't want to be on, on his, on his bad side. Uh, I don't want him messing around in my brain trying to find information. That's for sure. Um, but, but he is, I would say, um, consistent in, in his morality. He's not a hypocrite. Um, and I don't know if he's, he's, yeah, he, he deals out, uh, his, view of the world um, on other people pretty harshly, though, um, which is, that's the thing that I have a problem with, right, is that people are so sure that they're right, that they're willing to kill other people. Um, that's scary to me. And I wonder, how does a person get to that place? It happens with all kinds of people. It's not even just religion. I mean, people can be very sure about a variety of things. Um, so sure that this truth is more important and other people's lives. Um, wow, you know, that's interesting. And, and also, this truth is more important than other truths. Yes. <laughs> Which may yes. be less convenient. <laughs> right. But, right. But, like, uh, I also find it interesting in the sense of, like, when he was sensing Day Raven, like, this power, and then kind of questioning his, like, wait, am, am, am I the one? Or, or is it someone else? And, like, yeah. I thought it was going to break him. And, and, like, looking forward in other books, like, when things happen i obviously we don't know i feel like how is this going to balance it out like uh is he going to just say oh no it's that's that's a fluke thing like or is he going to yeah. go back and keep pushing that of yeah i don't know yeah Dusty, that's that's a really good one and i that is something i tried to do in that scene when day raven is forced to encounter bledla in that tent you know, next to the swamp there when they're rounding up the aglax he's brought there by yorman and Ladla is genuinely because he really wants Kingdom of the Eternal, whatever it takes. That is, he is he himself is not important. He's not an egomaniac in that sense, at least. I mean, he he thinks he's right, but he's not doing it for himself. And if he were convinced that Day Raven were the the new prophet of Edan, he would give everything to him. You know, if he were convinced. So that doubt in that moment where he's thinking, wait, my whole world is being swept from beneath me here because, wait, this guy could be fulfilling the prophecies. And that's the funny thing about prophecies is you can read them any number of ways. Um, and I tend to, <laughs> I, I tend to be one of those who, you know, prophecy is going to be true if, if you interpret it in a certain way, but if you look at it from another perspective and, you know, no. And so Bloodla is wondering, wait, have I, been, have I been misguiding myself all this time because of my own ego? And the fact that he's willing to consider that, I think shows you that his dedication is not to himself, it is to his religion. Um, and he's willing to give everything for it. Um, I want to say thank you for Erd. I think she's a great <sighs> character. Yes. Yeah, and, in some awesome. way, she, she reminds me of a Granny Weatherwax. So cool. Always, yeah. Always more grannies. Cool. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I wish I had read uh, more Pratchett before. I've only read four of the Discworld books at this point. Um, and one of them was, I did meet Granny Weatherwax uh, a few months ago. 
<laughs> so, um, I, I, but I, I, she is the type, right? I mean, there is a, yes, I think they must be related, right? Ord and Granny Weatherwax are probably distant cousins at least. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm really happy to hear you say that. I love her. I, uh, she is a, to me, a beautiful person. Uh, and uh, the fact that she is so protective of Day Raven, um, it kind of chokes me up a little bit. But at the same time, she is willing to sacrifice him. Um, all these years, she's been protecting him, knowing that he has the gift, that he could be a wizard. But this kid, he has this girlfriend that he loves and he wants to marry, he wants to be like his dad. Let me leave this poor kid alone. Because being a, being a wizard is kind of, it's a lonely business. Um, and that's not what he wants. So... When he gets that uh, power from his encounter with the elf, hmm. Ord sees that he cannot be left alone and realizes I'm gonna have to, he's going to have to be trained and he's probably going to be turned into a weapon. And that is a, a sacrifice for her. It's no accident that when the morning before she sends him away, I have her kill a goat, you know. It's a beautiful scene. Uh, that's... That's supposed to be some foreshadowing there. That's supposed to be setting the tone there where A. Raven is this innocent, you know, young person. Uh, he's a kid, right? Um, unintended there. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And so she slits that throat, you know. Uh, they have to have breakfast. Uh, so, uh, and she sends that, that kid out into the world where he's going to be a, a weapon, made into a weapon. Um, so, yeah, and she's terrified, too. You know, she loves him. She never stops loving him. But but the amount of power that's in him now that she can feel is, is terrifying. So, yeah, as uh, witches in the woods go, uh, she's definitely one of my favorites. She's uh, oh, cool. Yeah, one, one, maybe my favorite character in the book. Um, but uh, on the subject of the elf, that was I think that was a brilliant way to include to 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 have the vehicle of the the Buddhist and Hindu thinking brought into the world. And at the same time, the um, the elf did feel truly alien and and unfathomable. And um, I, I'm, I'm curious, um, what was your philosophy on writing the, the elf? And I assume they're going to be explored more uh, as the series goes on. I'm very excited about that. Uh, but you're also very sparing with uh, with elves in 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 this book, at least. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So you're absolutely right about the the Hindu Buddhist uh, underpinning there uh, in terms of what the elf does to Day Raven and his identity and his connection uh, with the world around him and forcing him from this provincial life. <coughs> At the same time, there was, you know, I, I wanted to do something different. I, I have to distinguish myself from Tolkien here in, in some mm -hmm. ways. Um, and, and so my elves are not pointy-eared, beautiful people, um, which is what I think most elves are to most people who read fantasy. I think Tolkien, elves existed before, way before Tolkien, obviously. I think most modern people's ideas of elves ultimately derive from Tolkien in one way or another, uh, whether it be through D&D &D or in other places. D&D, &D, which was, among other influences, Tolkien, I think, was big in, in Dungeons and & Dragons and other places. So, so yeah, I think that um, I went back to Old English and Old Norse, where elves are mentioned in the poetry. 
And they're terrifying. They're not, I mean, they might be beautiful, but they are terrifying. You do not want to meet one of these things. And that's pretty much all that we know in the, in the old English poetry uh, about elves is that they are, they're listed among all the other monsters, you know, that you don't want to meet. <laughs> so I, I said to myself, I need to make my elves terrifying. I want to make them something otherworldly, maybe beautiful, but celestial and remote. And uh, so that's what I did. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy with how that meshed with the Hindu and the Buddhist stuff. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I was going or what I was aiming for there. And there will be more in terms of what that elf is. Um, Day Raven's running around with a piece of it in his mind. Uh, that's kind of how it's presented right now. Um, mm -hmm. So, and it's clear that I, th I hope it's clear enough that what Day Raven is, is experiencing with the elf is very much like the gift, only on a scale that is just much more vast. Um, so it's similar, but it's the scale of it is probably the biggest difference. Um, so the question might also be then, what is the gift? And what does it grant one access to? Um, and maybe the elf is uh, an important piece of that puzzle as well. Um, so that's something that definitely does get explored uh, in books two and three, and um, in in some pretty big ways, I hope. Uh, uh, so I think think that's all I can say about that for now, though. Yeah. Look forward to it. Um, um, I, I look forward I, I, to I you. Just... Oh, go ahead, Ash. Uh, just just to add on to the uh, the point about the elf being not, you wouldn't want to meet, I, I would say that the elf is terrifying, and in spite of the terror and in spite of the the intellectual, you shouldn't want to meet this. I, I think you did an excellent job of making the draw, like putting the draw there anyways, the 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 lure, the uh, the call of the void, uh, maybe. Yeah. Um, have you guys ever know. been to uh, something like, um, I live near New York City and there's uh, uh, the American Museum of Natural History and they have this uh, IMAX theater in there where you can watch different um, movies and one of them about the universe. And it starts with us here on our good old planet Earth and then we zoom out and we're in the solar system. You realize how tiny this little, this piece of dust is that's, you know, swirling around the sun. And then it zooms out and you realize, oh, the sun is just a kind of like average star among all these billions and billions of stars, all to quote Carl Sagan there, billions and billions of stars all over the galaxy. And then you realize, wait, our galaxy is one of billions and billions. And then, oh my God. And you feel like nothing. Yes. Um, I started out in physics. That, you leave <laughs> yeah. that dazed with your jaw hanging open thinking I'm nothing. I'm this... That's what I want you to feel when you meet the elf, right? It's something on that order, you know. So yes, absolutely. I start out. I started out my um, university experience in physics, and I would absolutely say that's an analogous thing there. The uh, cool, yeah, cool, yeah. <laughs> I, I love, love physics. It. I don't understand it, but I love it. <laughs> uh, does anybody understand it? I'm not convinced. <laughs> it keeps my feet down. I'm happy. <laughs> Um, I'm looking forward to you uh, finally meeting Pratchett's elves. I'll just say that Pratchett's elves oh, are cool. very, very fun. Haven't met them yet. I have only read Guards, Guards, and uh, what's the first it'll, witch? It, book? It'll probably be a while. Uh, the, witch, the first witch book is Equal Rights, but it's a bit oh, different. Right. Yes, I read that. You first beat elves in the fourth witch's book, I think. So it, oh, it'll okay. probably be a while. 
Uh, but the witches are my favorite. Yeah, maybe second favorite. It's hard to say. Some good series in that in Discworld. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what I was after. Um, and uh, it sounds like it, it kind of worked. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really happy with that touch. And and, and it's something that you're right. There's the in- initial encounter with the elf in the beginning, but then all you're getting from it afterwards is what's in his head, right? Um, but you'll get more elf, uh, I promise, in, in the next book in a way that is even more different, I think. Um, mm. So um, gets a little trippy um, in, in book two. <laughs> trippy is good. Trippy is excellent. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so I assume... Uh, I don't have to assume you basically told us. You've been following uh, reception of your book. Is there anything that you wish to address or clarify or bring up? Something that you feel hasn't been talked about enough? In terms of the story, you mean? Is it really anything? Characters, story, missed details, themes? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's, uh, at least from my part, there was an attempt to... Beowulf is a huge model for me in so many ways. Uh, it's it's an inspiration for me. It's my favorite thing to teach. I did a lot of embedding in the book that there's, there's space, I think, for people to interpret. Uh, to um, Embedding meaning... So Beowulf is a poem that was uh, originally... It grew out of oral formulaic storytelling. And eventually somebody wrote down a story that we have in this uh, manuscript using many aspects of that oral formulaic storytelling, which is very much associative. So when you read Beowulf, you'll, you'll see that it doesn't follow a linear uh, progression, that the bard or whatever uh, is sidetracked a lot with all of these little side stories that and I, I don't think it takes a genius to figure out that what's going on in those side stories is there's a lot of thematic echoes. And so, you know, Beowulf kills... Grendel. Spoiler for Beowulf, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Beowulf kills... It's a thousand years old or more. So, yeah, yeah, a thousand years. I think we're good. Uh, Beowulf kills Grendel, and on the way back, they're celebrating, and the bard sings a story about this older he- hero named Sigmund, the dragon slayer. And so what's happening there is Beowulf is being compared to this older hero. He's being put in the pantheon of heroes for this deed. And there's also a... A thematic echo here too um, because hey this hero did these great deeds where is he now he's gone one day that will also be beowulf and one of the heroic responses in that older culture is this is a christian poet looking back on his ancestors one of the responses to mortality in that pagan heroic culture is do great deeds so your name will live on right and for the christian poet looking at that there's something futile in that right? There's something sad. Maybe it's admirable in a way, but there's also ultimately it's futile, right? Where does that, what good does all that treasure do when you buried it in that hero's funeral mound, right? It doesn't help his people. Um, so there's a, there's a sorrow at the heart of it, I think. So Beowulf is constantly introducing these side stories to interweave these themes into in there. And so that's something I tried to do a little bit. You'll notice that there are lots of stories within the story, mm-hmm. which I was worried, frankly, that some people would see it as a distraction. I was hoping that people would see it as world building, as part of that, uh, the history and giving people a sense that this, this place has depth to it. But they're also thematic echoes. So for example, there's a, a story 
the shaper, Aban, uh, recites uh, for the men of the mercenary company uh, the story of Alshin and Wilfar. And Alshin is a woman from hundreds of years ago who was kidnapped by these barbarians, um, and her fiancé, Wilfar, goes to look for her. The story is, is mentioned in the very beginning when Dayraven is uh, having this back and forth with Ebba, his, his fiancé. So right away, there's some foreshadowing there because Dayraven becomes an exile as well, right? He's taken away. Um, but I'm also looking at this theme of exile and identity. And here, this woman, Alshin, we find out at the, the, the end of the story that uh, she, Ilfar, after years of searching, finds her. He's disguised as a traitor and he tries to kill the, the, the chieftain that kidnapped his fiance like all those years ago. And instead of killing the chieftain, he kills the chieftain's son, who was named after him. So, so uh, and then he himself is slain in the process. And Alshin, she's lost her son now. She's lost her former lover, because she realizes then who he was after he's slain. And they have a funeral for this uh, chieftain's son and Alshin's son, and, and his being body's being devoured by the flames on the funeral pyre and she walks up to this funeral pyre and of course he has his weapons laid out with him and everything abs his sword and in the process flames start you know going all over her her robe and and she takes the sword and she plunges it into her husband the chieftain why does she do that why does she do that because her she still felt a measure of connection to wilfar her former lover and her identity as a person, even though it's been nearly two decades since she was taken from her home, she still felt within her a loyalty to her, her home, her village, her people. So she had taken on this new identity, but lurking beneath it all these years was that, 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 that person. Um, so I'm looking at, okay, you know, this is, this is just a story, but I hope it's also a thematic echo of the main story at the same time. And so Dayraven's hearing the story as a member of the mercenary company, and he's reflecting on not only the fact that he tried to tell the story, he mentioned it to, his, to Ebba, but it's a reflection of, and a mirror in a way of his own exile and his own pain and, and, and him trying to hold on to his identity against the odds. Um, so I, you know, I, I hope that, that that's something that I do um, throughout the book in these, with these little nods, these older stories, uh, and hopefully, you know, people will see, oh, okay, this is what he was doing with this, and this connects here. So there are a lot of these. It's okay, too, honestly, if people don't do that, if they, if they find the story entertaining just on the, on the surface level, that's great, too. Um, but, but that stuff is definitely, I, I tried to include that sort of thing in there. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, I'll be thinking about that next time I read. Maybe I'll read Beowulf before my next reread. Nice. <laughs> I, I, I keep chiming in with praise, and I apologize, but uh, I really liked how you um, you have these stories. There's this understanding that the function of these stories is not just to entertain, but to make sense of the world. And um, like for example, Dave Raven. This is this is how he through these stories. This is how he begins to reconcile himself with the events that he's these echoes that he's finding in his own life and um that this is a, a living process and um uh as well with the uh the dwayorgs is that how yes. it's pronounced or Dwayorg. yeah um, that was good yeah yeah excellent um <laughs> that uh yeah like that that 
to me seems like a clear echo of uh, of of uh, Sigmund Sigmund Sigismund Sigmund in, in Beowulf. Yeah, the the, the futility, yeah. the the cultural mortality there. Um, yes. Yes, a whole people. I mean, it's not just mm-hmm. our own individual mortality, but whole nations and peoples have disappeared. Look at the history of, of humanity. Yes, you know? and, and it's. Um, I, I also appreciate how the Dwayorks they they their cultures are radically different. And while it may look to a human that's oh why why can't you just get help from these 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 other Dwayorks that are over there? It's like no, these are completely different. And um, I think that's another excellent empathy building exercise because obviously, like um, if uh, in in North America, um, Canadians and Americans look very similar to outsiders, <laughs> and uh, right. there's right. Uh, Canadians have a chip on our shoulder, <laughs> chip on our shoulders basically because of this. Um, which uh, yeah. well, in my case, I'm actually one quarter Canadian, so maybe maybe I uh, count. I don't know. A lost brother. <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah no I, I thank you yeah that uh, the dwergs uh you know gnorn and hlok and and we do meet their their the remnants of the dwergs of the fernhaus in in living lingering on in, in ettenstone and uh day raven connects with them because they're exiles too um, and that's part of the empathy you know um that uh that, uh, that's the thing about Dayraven that I want to explore a lot is, is empathy through him. You know, he's somebody who, because of the encounter with the elf, it's maybe enhanced. You know, when he goes to battle, he kind of sucks at it because he, when he stabs a guy, he basically dies along with him. And I hope that that, that, that affects not just the character, but you know, I don't want to write battle scenes where they're just... There's this glorious march to victory and, and the bad people are defeated and, and hooray. I wanted to have some more complexity in that um, and to show the, that it's visceral and that it's bloody and that it's horrible and that people's lives are cut off and that affects other people. Um, and so for Day Raven to experience that, he's incapable of otherizing, which is what you have to do as a soldier. You have to otherize, otherwise you'll go crazy. He can't do it. He cannot do it. Um, so when he, he um, sort of accidentally kills that, that uh, Cargillis soldier, he dies along with him. And um, that's, a, I, I hope, a moment of, uh, you know, uh, when we read a lot of fantasy, uh, it, we don't, I, I think we tend not to think about consequences of violence as much um, and, and, and the causes. And I hope it comes across that these are things that I'm trying to explore um, in, in the series as well. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that aspect of Day Raven really reminds me of uh, who is probably my favorite character, Malazan Troll Sengar. Uh, oh yes, who, yeah, yes. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, similar ability and or curse. Um, yeah, was- yeah. No, he's interesting. I mean, he, he's the best around with a spear, but mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't seem to really. Uh, I mean, he, the guy's, he's, yeah, I mean, I don't know how he got to be so good, uh, but, but he is, he's, he's such a beautiful character because of how he reaches out to people, how he understands people. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely, so that, I mean, that's any, that, that comparison is extremely, um, kind of you, uh, for sure. Um, so, but yeah, that's kind of what I'm going for with Day Raven. I, I, I feel like with Day Raven, People are more likely to connect with him in books two and three, maybe, than in book one. If, if you think that Day Raven is a, 
kind of typical chosen one kind of uh, trope. I think you might be surprised in, in maybe starting to see some of the surprise in book two, but especially in book three. Um, so, um, but yeah, that empathy thing is something that I really want to explore with him. I'm yeah, he doesn't air the connection will be better in book two and three because I just couldn't connect with him this book. So uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it took me no, about I, half a book. I hear that. I hear that. I mean, he's. I think a lot of people are going to read that character and think, "Oh, I know what this character is. I've seen this a million times in fantasy." You know, this is oh, whoever Randall Thor, uh, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, I'm not doing uh, a Randall Thor. I mean, they're. I don't think I am anyway. That's not what I'm doing. Uh, and I and I like Wheel of Time. Fine. I'm not trying to knock it. Um, but I think it. People will probably see that I'm doing something a bit different. I hope anyway. I tried to. Um, uh, and if anything, you know, um, if there are other analogies out there, because the chosen one is it. It's a it's a trope. Um, and again, it can be done well or or done in a more cliche manner. Um, and I, I definitely try to complicate it in a way. Like there are certain chosen ones that out there, like Paul in Dune, for example. I think he's a good example of a chosen one who does not conform all the way to, <laughs> without any spoilers, because there might be people who haven't read Dune, but doesn't read conform. Messiah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I hope that that people will will say that of Day Raven that it doesn't follow the easy path of a chosen one trope right so we'll see yeah we'll see <laughs> he he doesn't feel typical to me so much as young and uh-huh. uh yeah like he, has, he hasn't solidified his opinions on the world he doesn't know exactly what he thinks yet maybe um, loyal to a fault yeah i i yeah. I, I, I like <laughs> yes i, I like yeah. that you um uh uh had had started him with a name first in mind because that's actually what i liked most about him at the start because ravens are one of my favorite animals i ended up getting a tattoo of a raven on my on my uh oh, cool chest so yeah. that was oh dave raven finally a character that uh that, that uh, i can connect with <laughs> yeah well hopefully you'll feel more and more connected with him as uh, the series progresses but um he is somewhat naive but part of that is the fact that he feels other people so deeply. And I think a lot of people have an issue with how he was supposed to go get trained by the wizard Galdor and he takes a left turn, um, which initially isn't his doing, right? They fall into this sort of unfortunate situation where they're forced to, to, to join the mercenary company. Then when he gets to know the dwergs and forms this oath to Gnorn and Hlok's cousin, Ilm. I think a lot of people are like, wait, he needs to go to Galdor. Why isn't he going to Galdor? Um, and, and that's fine. I don't mind that reaction at all, um, because that means that people were invested in, in that journey. Uh, sorry, I took that away from you, <laughs> uh, at least temporarily. <laughs> to me, Dayraven's character is such that his decision to stick with Gnorn and Hlok in that moment makes sense. Because he's such an empathetic individual, because he feels so connected to the dwergs, because he feels Ilm's pain, he feels Ilm's sorrow, it is his sorrow in that moment. So he, is, he is feeling as protective of Gnorn and Hlok as she is in that moment. And how else, how else could he possibly react than to decide to stick with them uh, as, as his friends? Uh, so... 
For me, that decision doesn't make a ton of sense if if that's a character who's looking out for themselves or, you know, that sort of thing, which maybe is most of us, I don't know. <laughs> but but Day Raven is a very empathetic uh, individual. That's the, the, that's his core, right? And, and so the decision, I think, is consistent, at least, who he is. Uh, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's, it's dumb, you could say, <laughs> um, uh, or whatever, but I think it's consistent with who he is. And so, you know, he still intends to go to Galdor, uh, but things definitely get uh, out of his control. No, I agree. It's very consistent with his character, especially since you established early his love for stories and his empathy. And I love how they they bond and they get this empathetic uh, connection through their sharing of stories, uh, usually from the dwarves to dwarves to uh, Day Raven as well. Yeah, yeah. Imhar is kind of bored by all those stories. But, you know. <laughs> I like Imhar. Nice little twist like there that he was a noble too. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I like him hard too, um, and he's somebody who deserves his own, I think, story, his own path. So at the end, as painful as it was for me to separate the two of them, I felt I'm like you know, Imhar, you did you, that. Yeah, oh, cool. yeah. I felt like you know, Imhar, he deserves this. Uh, he deserves to find his own people. Um, so, uh, but yeah, he had to live a life of essentially a, you know a slave a thrall and uh he had given up his identity all those years um so i felt like it was important to have give him an opportunity to reclaim that so yeah it's um getting kind of late we've talked for almost an hour and a half um yeah i hardly even noticed but yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it's several hours after when ash told you was we time we were starting so shall we wrap up yeah, that'd be great. No, this this worked out great, and um, I'm I'm very very happy for the invitation. And my evening was free, so that it worked out well. In fact, it my worked out well for my daughter because I ended up being able to bring her to her friend's place earlier than expected. So awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you, thank you for setting aside the time for us. Um, we'd love to yeah. talk to you again sometime if you're up for it. Sure, it was Maybe great after meeting the other two books. It was great meeting you. I would love to uh, talk with you guys again. Absolutely. I'm uh, be delighted. Maybe a Malazan episode. Absolutely. I, I can talk Malazan all day long. Uh, so <laughs> in fact, uh, I've got Forge of the High Mage. Uh, it's not my next book, but my next next book. Uh, so It's yeah. my next book, so I'm looking forward to that. I need nice. to still get around to Path to Ascendancy, but I finished a sale uh, last month and I really loved it. Oh, sweet. Yeah, that's a good one. Some nice old English influences in there. Mr. Esselmont <laughs> yeah. wears the old English influences a little bit more on his sleeve than Mr. Erickson does. So, yeah. Um, I, I love the sale. I really had a great time with it. Yeah. Uh, yes. I'm going to have to go back and read all that stuff now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Afraid so. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I shut off? Yep. Uh, yeah. All right, that has been uh, the Green Team uh, Wave It Done <laughs> talk with uh, author Philip Chase. Thank you again, Philip, for taking your time to talk with us. We really enjoyed your book, and we hope more people will read it. Oh, thank um, you, guys. I'm Heron Fan, and we have Ashman and Dusty and Philip Chase. Uh, goodbye. Good night, <laughs> everybody. See ya.